You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored well hello and welcome to tfm's books and comics show for star trek and i'm just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and so excited as always to have with me casey pettit casey how are you doing today i am doing great you know we've got uh exciting interview with dayton ward coming up for a new uh, star trek book so you know what's better than you know you can't be you can't feel down when you've got a new Star Trek book in your hands. No, uh, 100% agree. It's so great to have uh, Dayton out of the green room. Uh, now we can finally clean it. Uh, but no, I'm just, uh, I'm really excited. I know there have not been a lot of Star Trek books that have come out recently. And, uh, you know, this affords us the opportunity uh, to be able to talk uh, to one of the authors again. And so always love having Dayton back, especially since... You know, he was the very first guest that we ever had on our very first episode all the way back. I think it's 2012. So it's been a long time. Uh, But uh, before we're going to we got one comic here that we're going to talk about and review the Star Trek annual 2023. Uh, But before we do that, I just want to thank everybody for listening and we really appreciate it. Uh, There's a few things that you can do to help out the show that we would love uh, follow us over on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at Trek FM. We're on Instagram at Trek FM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We've got the website at trek.fm. Uh, you can also join the listeners only discussion group and talk to listeners from all over the world uh, that uh, listen to the podcasts, discuss the episodes. You can also, of course, uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And, and that way you'll get our shows as soon as they drop. And of course, you know, if you are on a platform that allows you to give ratings or reviews, please do that and spend a couple of minutes. It actually makes a huge difference. And honestly, you know, it's been a long time since we've had a review of Literary Trek, so we'd really appreciate that. And then last but not least, we would love it if you would go to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm and be part of our team. Uh, we've got some great associate producers here on Literary Treks, Casey Pettit and Greg Rosier, who have been supporting the network for a very long time. uh, And one of their perks is uh, being an associate producer here of Literary Treks. And so we really appreciate their support. There's just no way we can do this without their help. And so, again, join them. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of our team. So, Casey, uh, as we mentioned there, we've got the uh, Star Trek Annual 2023. And this is kind of a intermediary uh, issue in the sense that it's it's kind of getting us ready for the day of blood and it's kind of setting up where the story is going uh, but at the same time um, it is uh, also telling its own little interesting story it, it's basically like an episode it, it you know uh, everything that happens in this allows the, it to finish off and you know we continue on and so what did you end up thinking of this uh, very outlandish <laughs> issue. And I think one that follows up on something that I was very surprised to see followed up on from Star Trek Voyager. Well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, first of all, it's, it is nice to get just a standalone story from time to time. And, you know, these annuals are a great chance to do that. And then, you know, the, the way that they brought, you know, if anybody's seen the cover of it, you're seeing, people from all eras of Star Trek. And so it's always interesting to see how they're going to do that. And I think it's done nicely here. Um, except for the uh, kind of creeptastic shot of Kirk getting out of his chair on page 10 of the digital issue of this. But um, 
you know, overall, you know, it's it's just kind of a fun uh, issue way to kind of talk about some of our characters and learn about some of them. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm not sure I'm picking up what you're putting down about Voyager, though. Well, uh, oh, no. you know, never with mind. The- yes, I am. I'm just, I'm flipping through it. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. And yes, and actually, it does make me wonder where they're going to take that from here, too. Um, because uh, you know, especially how they've brought these characters to life, um, pun not really intended, but kind of works here. But uh, you know, it's uh, an interesting way for them, um, going forward in this Star Trek ongoing series to be able to use a lot of historical characters and, um, you know, and speaking of Voyager, I'm actually kind of surprised we didn't actually see the doctor in here, but, um, yeah, I mean, overall fun, fun issue, but, um, it's, and as standalone as it is, I'm kind of curious, like how they're going to tie this in as we continue forward, um, especially with day of blood, cause right on the front of this, it says countdown to day of blood. So, right. you know, how are they going to work that, um, or work this into that story? Uh, I'm mm-hmm. really looking forward to see, but, um, you know, for, for an annual issue, you know, it's, it's not really much longer than any of the other issues that we get, but, um, still kind of a, a nice little change of pace, you know, from what we've been getting. Yeah. I mean, I think this is uh, an, a very interesting issue, especially, like I said, you know, following up on photons must be free, um, which, you know, was the story that the doctor had written in Voyager and the fact that these specific holograms uh, had found sentience because of the way that they were interlinked with the Theseus itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that that's one of the things here that it it makes me feel like this probably won't be something that um, affects, you know, every hologram uh, because of the, the special nature of the Theseus itself. Uh, and, and, so that I think that's w- the way that you can get around that. Um, so I, I like that. Um, but I also, like you said, this allows you then to almost have a lot of these characters back. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's really an, an interesting thought of, you know, being able to play with these characters uh, that, you know, are long gone um, yeah. without having to go through the craziness of finding a way to literally bring them back to life um there are you know there's a couple things in here one i think it's talir the vulcan mm-hmm. um i i we're still in this process of trying to figure out what in the world is going on with him mm-hmm. um which this issue you know continues to allude to uh and so that was kind of interesting and i gotta say uh you know i love the fact that uh, Lower Decks is really being referenced here, not just for the fact that Shax is, uh, again, in this issue, uh, but that they're playing the uh, Klingon D&D game, uh, which right. is hilarious uh, when, you know, Cisco is like, I'm not healing any of y'all. Um, I just found it to be pretty hysterical. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like you, it's it's a... It's a good self-contained issue, and I think it, it is a fun story, and it it gives us a nice kind of breather before we really dive into um, what's going to happen in the Day of Blood series, which feels like it's it's going to be pretty epic. Yeah. Also, you know... You know, the artwork in all of these going on so far this year has been been really great, but I really loved the you know the very last page of this, you know the very end of the story, and we had kind of this overhead view of this society that these holograms are setting up on this planet. Um, and I and I was mistaken; you actually do get a get a little glimpse of the Doctor in there, but you also get you know very kind of rough, you know, images like from far away of a lot of different people. And if you look close enough, you can actually see a lot of characters that we recognize in there. Um, you know, we can see a Michael Burnham, you know, Cork is in there, Wesley in his uh, you know, gray jumpsuit with the colored tops and um, you know, Guinan's in there. Like so many references in this one little picture. Uh it's just really cool to see and kind of makes you 
you know, I can't, uh, I can't uh, emphasize it enough that I'm really curious to see if they're going to continue using these characters as we go forward. We saw a box of holo- or of uh, portable emitters, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so any of them can show up wherever and whenever we need them to. No, I, and in some ways, again, I, I think this whole series has kind of been sold to us as the Avengers of Star Trek. Uh, and so this really allows that to be the case in some ways. And so I'm excited to see, you know, uh, if and what they do with this. I I think that'll be fun. Um, But like you said, Casey, you know, we've got a great interview coming up here with Dayton Ward about his brand new Star Trek Discovery book, Somewhere to Belong. And so, man, I, I think we should just get into the green room and get this conversation going. Yeah, let's unlock that door and check the snack bar. Casey, you know, this poor man has been stuck in our green room for so long, uh, and we are just so excited with the fact that we've got none other than Dayton Ward here to talk about a new Star Trek book, the Discovery book, Somewhere to Belong. Dayton, goodness, it's it's nice to have you out of the green room. Welcome back. It's been a minute, hasn't it? It, it? it definitely has been a hot minute. So uh, we're so excited. The fact that one, you know, the book finally came out and now we get a chance to, to talk about it with you. Well, I'm not as not as excited as I am because I've been waiting. <laughs> uh, this thing was supposed to get published last year. So it was supposed to get published back in the fall of 2022, but it got pushed because of, say it with me, folks, supply chain <laughs> issues. Yeah, everybody's favorite topic, right? That sounds like that that yeah. should be a a lower decks episode is about Starfleet <laughs> supply chain issues. I will be surprised if there's not an episode called that at some point before that show wraps. There's got to be. There's mm-hmm. got to be. Well, and so speaking of that, you know, obviously because of the pushback and everything for you, the setting of this book, it happens between seasons three and four of Discovery. And so I just wanted to know, you know, with you guys right now, you had been writing these books that were taking place in series that were still happening. And so what was the process like trying to figure out the right place to set this story? Um, And then where did the genesis of this story end up coming from? Well, I, my immediate thought when I got asked to write another Discovery novel was, um, you know, there's that the way that season three ends and the way that season four starts. And there's an obvious gap between the two seasons. And at the end of season three, there's a lot of questions that are not answered, at least to my satisfaction, as far as, you know, how the crew assimilates into their new reality. And they didn't even have a chance to catch their breath after they came through the, you know, the the, the rift and into the 32nd century. They immediately got put to work or they immediately put themselves to work, depending on how you want to look at it. And, you know, at the end of the season, there are unresolved uh, interpersonal conflicts between certain members of the crew. And we just have the questions about, well, how did they come to be at peace with what they're doing? Did they have second thoughts? Is anybody homesick? You know, that, what happens to everybody? And by the time season four opens, all those questions apparently have been answered off camera. And we're into the next adventure. And, you know, of course, being, you know, serialized TV and, and Discovery in particular being the way it was, you know, we're off and running. And there's no time for those kinds of long, in-depth, you know, explorations of the different characters, uh, except here and there as as circumstances permit. So I just had jotted down a bunch of these questions and decided I want to examine them. And so that was what the primary driver for putting it between seasons three and four. Granted, I thought it would come out closer to the end of when season four had been delivered to streaming, but so be it. You know, it's hopefully you can read it anyway. Um, and as far as the rest of the main plot that drives the book, I don't know how we're not ready to get into spoilers yet. I know, um, I worked that out with, uh, Kirsten Beyer and my editor at Simon and Schuster, Margaret Clark. Um, you know, I just, it was Kirsten's idea to involve the, the, you know, we'll call them the guest aliens for for the moment, because we don't want to, you haven't, you haven't issued a spoiler (laughs) warning yet. So, um, it was her idea. So between the two of us, we worked out a few questions because I started plinking around about how can I attach that back to, you know, points of history, points of lore. 
And what can we do with them that hasn't been done before? And, you know, of course, I had to ask, are you planning to do anything with these particular aliens? Because lo and behold, you know what happens. As soon as I write the book, they'll come up with something. <laughs> um, so she assured me that they were done with that particular alien race. They were moving on to other directions. Um, so with her blessing and her, you know, and her helping me uh, decide what we could do with them, that's that's how I hammered out the rest of the plot. Um, and then from there, it was just sort of like, how do I that's when I started hitting on the themes of, you know, what drives the plot of, you know, belonging and family and home, uh, which happened to work for both sides of the story. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a story point that kind of really flows through very well through all of the story points in here is, I mean, the title couldn't have fit better for this somewhere to belong. I mean, you know, with the crew, you know, trying to find their place, like you said, and then, with our, our guest aliens even trying to do the same thing with kind of this split, this rift that they have in their culture that, um, you know, you got kind of two different sides of their culture trying to find their place in the universe. And, um, you know, I I think it's probably we should just dive right into spoilers. And, um, you know, so if, if you're listening and you haven't read this, stop right now, listen, or, you know, go read the book um, and then come back to this. But... You know, I, I want to talk about. Yeah, we'll wait. Yeah, we'll wait. We'll, wait. we'll, we'll be here. <laughs> Date, Dayton wait, waits in the green room anyway, so it's fine. Um, you really need to upgrade your snacks, okay. guys. That's all I'm saying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's it's a cork is really falling down on the job. He's not sending <laughs> us. Uh, you know, the the last thing I think we got were those like what were those those snap pea things those uh those snow beetles or whatever. I'm so sorry. Um. So our you know guest aliens here obviously are the Zahians. So I love the history that you kind of wrote for them being well love maybe isn't the greatest word but they're victims of the Cardassians just like the Bajorans were they um you know kind of fell to the Dominion as well during the Dominion War and so kind of getting some of that 24th century history was really cool but we've got these two kind of ideals i guess for the for their society the ones who want to stay alone and ones who want to kind of break off and explore or at least have that option and so yeah i guess i wondered if if you could talk about why the zahians why you know that we we saw them in season two you know was there did you just fall in love with them <laughs> you know what what brought you to that conclusion to use them um again that came out of the conversations i had with kirsten she she kind of encouraged me to run with that idea because i was looking for um i was looking for some way to tap into something from their past um to help them with the current dilemma and the zahians were one of the prominent alien races that were introduced in discovery um and you know i didn't want to do anything with um you know the kelpians because that that plot Red was going to work its way out in season four. So I had to account for Saru not being there. Uh, and um, so I decided that I would do that. And then once I started playing around and looking back, I'm like, well, why wouldn't they have been victims of the Cardassians or why wouldn't they have been part of a pawn in the Dominion War? And then so many other things. And then uh, the idea of them trying to build their a version of their society, because we know from discovery that, you know, they believed that they were very much intertwined with their with the planet that they're from their original world they they believe that they were born at the same time as their planet formed i don't know whether that's true or not they don't really come down one way or the other to explain that but that's their belief that's their culture that's their whole their whole society revolves around that idea that they have this relationship with their planet and so there's a faction that wants to preserve as much of that as possible. And there's a faction that's like, well, that didn't really work out for us. <laughs> so why don't we try something different? And there's no wrong answer. You know, that's what I was trying to to to, to thread a thread, you know, through that is that both sides can be right for different reasons. But why can't we think about it in terms of options that are available to us, especially after the burn, mm -hmm. you know, when, when everything gets thrown into chaos and upheaval and, uh, you know, just the way, the way we get along and the way we get around don't, aren't the same. And that's even Discovery's crew is still figuring that out as they get there. They realize, you know, we, we skipped over a really big chunk of time and a big, big bunch of developments and we're still trying to find our way. And here's this group of people that we have some exposure with that are now trying to find their way. Well, that's such an interesting thing because, you know, 
it really goes to where we are. And I think in, in our society is, a, you know, it, everybody thinks everything has to be a binary choice, you know, but, you know, you can have both and right. Like you can still be people who hold on to your the core of, of who you are with your planet. But you could also be people that explore those those things aren't mutually exclusive. And yet, you know, we get these groups who like to just make things mutually exclusive when it doesn't have to be that way. But we get locked in and, you know, our society is modern society is, is very much a victim of this. We get locked into certain ways of thinking. We get locked into absolutes and it is a binary. A lot of people do view life as a series of binary choices. You're either in or you're out. You're either them or you're us. You're either the good guys or the bad guys. And, you know, there are people who can make compelling arguments for any one of those positions. Uh, and then it just comes down to what your personal beliefs and value systems are. Um, and that's when you start to figure out where the conflicts are. That's where the conflicts start to emerge is because you, value systems begin to clash. And that was an easy target, which I tried to avoid. Uh, I tried to avoid coming down on one side is right, one side is wrong. I wanted there to be multi multiple options here and the federation being forced to or in the form of captain burnham and her crew you know trying to see both sides of this and trying to thread a needle in a diplomatic way the way that you would expect one of the other captains kirk or picard to do in a traditional star trek story that was also my driving factor i would really i really wanted a traditional star trek story where the crew one one book one adventure you know you don't have to read six books you don't have to read an entire series um, it's a traditional adventure where they go to a planet and they try to solve a problem and leave the place better than they found it. Uh, but maybe they don't quite cross off all the boxes. That's, you know, that's, that's usually a, a good Star Trek story formula, uh, which we had not gotten in discovery except for very, very few occasions throughout its run. So that was one of my driving factors was I just love to tell of a traditional Star Trek story where the captain and the crew dive into the middle of a problem and, Things go bad for a while before they get better. Well, and then you've got, you know, both the sides on the Zahian side that, you know, ultimately think they're doing what's best for their culture. They, you know, maybe sometimes, you know, the with Sen and the Ministry of Security, you know, they, you know, they're kind of uh, prompting some of these counter protests and things right. like that. But right. they're doing it because they think it's for the good of their people. Right. It was like, I don't, I don't really like mustache twirling villains and I don't like, uh, you know, I, I think the best, and I don't know that you would call them villains per se, misguided, overly devoted to their <laughs> ideology um, in this case. But, uh, you know, the best villains always think they're doing the right thing for the right reasons and you can't convince them otherwise. So that's, that's always been a thing with me. And yeah, I just, I just like the idea of, you know, there's not really a right or wrong answer. There are degrees where, you know, if both sides could just calm down for a second and try to see the other point of view, we might reach consensus. But um, yeah, there might've been some topicality going on there. I don't know, subconsciously. Yeah. All good well, that's a cool thing too, because, you know, with them having been victims of the Cardassians, you know, it really does harken back. In, in the Dominion, it harkens back to the you know Deep Space Nine, which was so good. I think about creating the arguments on both sides, and then leaving the you know the viewer to be like, "What side do I fall on?" You know, and right. and so I, I think that that's actually a hallmark of the best of Star Trek when you're able to do that. You 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 know Star Trek. I don't think and at its best necessarily has to tell you what you have to think. Right. Um, and it, it, it leaves you like, OK, well, uh, it, you have to question and wrestle um, with those ideas. And I, I think that's that's a really, um, I think, a much better form than just kind of like, you know, preaching at somebody and, and making them come down on one side or the other. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, I agree. There's you know, there are, there might be a handful of issues where no, there really aren't two sides to that story. <laughs> But, this is true. But those like are, genocide, yeah, those are the, you know, that kind of thing. Those are easy marks. Yeah, those are easy marks, and they don't make really interesting stories. So, you know, the idea that, you know, I can be wrong, I can be right, he could be wrong, he could be right, we could be both wrong and both right, and still find a way to work together. That's the more compelling story for me. Um, you know, and of course, the whole thing is a backdrop, because my primary drive for the book was to explore our characters and how they're a, Sorry, guys, I don't want to say it, but it's the only one that comes to mind. Assimilate into their new reality. 
acclimate to their new reality um, and, and find a way forward. Uh, you know, obviously the show uh, season four shows that they're doing a fairly decent job of that, but I thought there were some, it was, it all got swept away in my brain. So I wanted to, I wanted to have a little more exploration of how they did it and what they went through and what prompted them to put, bury the hatchet, you know, in certain circumstances. What were the, the storylines for, uh, the discovery characters then that you were most excited to be able to tackle since you felt like there was so much kind of left up in the air that you wanted to see what, what were the things that when you jotted down, you're like, I have to tell this story. Well, I mean, an easy one was, you know, at the end of season three, Stamets is very honked off at Burnham, uh, for how he treats her, how, how she treats him. You know, she, she ejects him from the ship when he wants to help and he, she unilaterally makes that decision and feels like robbed him of a chance to help out or be his own person. Uh, Culber is feeling overwhelmed as a de facto counselor to the ship because, you know, everybody's got their problems, but so he's got their problems and his problems, but which one takes precedence? And then how does that affect his personal relationship with, with Stamets? Uh, Tilly, of course, um, you know, she's looking to find her way in this new reality and bringing in, that was another reason for bringing in the Zahians because it let me focus some on Tilly, you know, is she up for the challenge? Is she up for the, for the, for the demands and the rigor of, of what's being asked of her? So those were the four big ones And Burnham, of course, you know, she's had the, she had the year edge on everybody. So she's like, can I lead these people? You know, they, you know, do they need a year to acclimate like I did? Or, you know, can I help them with lessons learned uh, and, and help them over the hump? I mean, so there were a lot of um, just fluid situations that I thought would be fun for exploration. And then I also, you know, that's why I decided to bring in an outside character uh, in the form of the therapist at Anobulin. Uh So he could, you know, speak to them as an outside observer. You know, you guys are wrapped up in your own emotions and your own interpersonal conflicts, but here's what I see from a detached point of view uh, to help them over the hump. And so he, and he's very much, he's very much uh, based on a character uh, from a show that I dearly love, uh, MASH. He is very much modeled on Dr. Sidney Friedman, the, uh, the counselor who shows up in various episodes throughout the run of the series and, and plays a very big part in the finale. Uh, in fact, the actor's name is Arbus or is Alan Arbus. So I kind of flipped the name to give him the alien denobulant name. So nobody's caught me on that one yet. So I, I wondered That's if somebody fantastic. might catch it, but so far so good. So I'm spoiling it now. So by the time this thing <laughs> goes, maybe somebody will have caught me. I just added myself. <laughs> I mean, I even said in the early talks is I want a Sidney Friedman character to, to be able to poke and, and prod and cajole and let them let the characters work out their issues while he just sort of mentors them along. So that was, you know, one of the great things, you know, was even just at the very end of the book um, that Burnham actually, you know, kind of in her point of view in the last chapter of the book, she basically has this realization that she and, and her crew have to take time for mental health and their well being, And that it's invaluable to, to them. Um, you know, which is not something that, I mean, we, we've seen some of it in Star Trek. I feel like, you know, put a counselor on the bridge and next generation and, you know, it's, it's come up in various forms, but just to have this, you know, if there was ever a crew that needed mental health counseling, this is the crew. And especially with Colber, you know, he needs help. But I, you know, I, I kind of actually hope we see, you know, Dr. Abrisella again someday because, he didn't play a huge part in the book, but he was there just enough, I feel like, to um, – he was there when he was needed, I guess. Um, yeah, I didn't want him to overshadow our our hero characters, uh, but I wanted him to be there at certain key moments so that he could help, you know, help them connect a dot, help them see the, the, the which, you know, which turn to make, that kind, which fork in the road to take, that kind of thing, um, which is what a good therapist will do. You know, they will help guide you to what works best for you. Mental health has always had a stigma, particularly in military circles and, you know, pseudo military circles. In the case of Star Trek, it's always been stigmatized and, and downplayed and even ostracized. And, you know, there's there are situations where, you know, military personnel will not reveal that they're having some kind of issue like that or they're in a crisis like that because for fear of how it will affect their career. And, you know, so in recent years and in different vocations and walks of life people are starting to figure out that this is not to be dismissed. This is important. 
uh, and PTSD and trauma, you know, can take any form and it has a number of triggers and um, just it's, it's, it's our increased understanding of mental health care and mental health issues uh, that helps make these stories more personal. I mean, there are a lot of people who will say, well, Captain Kirk would never do that. You know, I, I doubt, I don't agree with that. I think if Captain Kirk were being the subject of a story like that today, we would see something like this. He would, he would confide more in bones or somebody else who's more qualified to do that. And there are hints of it in next generation. Like when Picard, you know, undergoes his torture at the Cardassians at the hands of the Cardassians. And he sits down at the end of that episode with counselor Troy to discuss that. That's, you know, that's the beginning of that therapy, not a one-stop shop. So we wouldn't, we don't get to see that kind of thing, but we can infer that it happened. And yes, Discovery, I think, has taken that a little bit, a lot further in terms of normalizing that this sort of care is important. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the Colbert recognized that during season three once they got there, but then seeing his struggle with this too, because he is taking that on himself, but not, you know, he doesn't, who's he supposed to go to? Like who counsels the counselor essentially. And so to see somebody else come in that he kind of butts heads with a bit at the beginning because he sees them as, you know, almost a challenge, I guess, to what he's trying to do for the crew. Uh, But by the end, really kind of coming to see the benefit of having someone for him, but also for the rest of the crew as well. But that was very well done. Thank you. And I claim no expertise in this field, by the way. I was sort of navigating my way and, and, and asking people who are better informed on the topic than I am for guidance on how I, how, do I, how do I construct this scene? How do I compose this dialogue? How do I have this interaction work? So hopefully it makes, works. That makes me wonder, too, like going through and writing this type of story, um, what did you end up feeling like you ended up learning about the the idea of mental health with having to do the research and having to have conversations to to talk to people about okay what would be most helpful for a character like Colbert here um, or Burnham or you know anyone who's having these discussions with our psychologist what what would actually help a lot of time and I don't you know I don't claim to have the answers I don't claim to be an expert I'm just it just seems that from my conversations with the people that I entrusted with this you know a lot of times mental health comes down to the person just wants to be heard. They want to somebody to listen and to empathize with what they're enduring. And that can be enough to unlock whatever it is that's got them uh, in crisis and just lets them, gives them the freedom and the safe space and the security to be able to talk about what it is that's bothering them. That's what I learned. Um, it's uh, like, I don't want to downplay it. And I, and I, I've, and all the time I was working on the book, I was worried about, I don't want to come across as this is a pat answer. Or this is uh, you know, easy fix or anything like that. It's a very sensitive topic. And I tried to approach it that way. Um, ultimately it's up to the reader to decide if I did it right or not, but my intentions were honorable. That's all I can say. Well, you know, all the characters end up in a good place, but not, totally fixed you know you can see Stamets on the way to accepting Burnham and kind of burying the hatchet a little bit but maybe it's still there a little bit in the back of his mind so it's not a complete healing but a road to recovery I guess Uh, you know we're all works in progress Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I guess the better thing you know the thing we can hope to be is you know we're better than we were yesterday and we can improve a little bit tomorrow and just keep repeating that as to you know we're never I don't know that you're ever cured. I hate to use that word. Uh, I don't know that you ever get over these sorts of issues, but you learn to deal with them and you learn to, to, to emotionally compartmentalize them or just incorporate them into your life in a positive way rather than it being self-destructive. Uh, again, I, I'm not a therapist licensed or otherwise, so please do not take my word as gospel. I, it's my personal takeaway from this. I just had one question that I, I was thinking of when you were talking about this subject and, and, you know, kind of mentioning how, you know, discovery season three had left you with a lot of questions. And then season four seemed to have like answered all those questions for the, the, you know, characters, but not for you as the audience. Do you, do you feel like this uh, type of storytelling actually 
in some ways makes it a little bit easier to come in and write these these books where you can create answers to these big questions that the show itself isn't doing. Whereas when, you know, when you had the old shows, you had 26 episodes a season or whatever, you know, you're covering so much of these people's lives. Whereas this seems to be like these, you know, three month, you know, one year snapshots. And and then, you know, you, you go to the next season and you're moving on um, so fast. Does that, does that make it easier to write these type of stories as, as opposed to some of the other ones where you're like, all right, how do I fit this in between, you know, this episode and this episode and and not make it seem stupid? Well, I mean, you know, we benefit from the fact that there aren't that many discovery stories. Uh, I mean, essentially there's four <laughs> <laughs> main discovery stories in canon that have been divided up into chunks. And along the way, there are some smaller stories that get peppered in there. Like there are the occasional asides, like the away mission during season one and things like that. But I mean, for the most part, Season one and season two are right on top of each other. Somebody, you know, I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago about, well, we could do a discovery novel set between seasons one and two. And I'm like, how? I mean, in the turbo lift on the way to the transporter room, because you're going to go greet Pike, because that's how you left it. I yeah, mean, they got pulled out of time, Dayton. You didn't realize that. And then they got inserted right back when they were, you know, in the lift ride. And then, uh, you know, and then season three, you know, introduces a gap for, you know, for the crew, but. Not you know, and, and and Una McCormick already did a wonderful job of covering that year when Burnham is by herself in her own novel, uh, and then so and then out out of the rift comes Discovery and right into the next adventure, and then we finally get a break of I think it's three or four months between three and four, and there's another break between seasons four and five that's several months. So, you know, if you're a tie-in writer, you're looking for those opportunities. You're looking for those. You know, what did you leave on the table? What threads did you leave hanging? And, you know, how much space do I have to work in? That's that's meat and potatoes for a tie-in writer. Uh, the newer shows have been, um, you know, challenging is the nice word I will use in terms of trying to figure out how you're going to stick a book or a comic book or something into the mix. And, A, number one, not tread on anything the shows are doing. Uh, you want to stay away from anything the shows are doing, but you also don't want to set yourself up to be steamrolled right out of the gate. So it's a dance. Um, we all took lessons. Uh, we all try to dance in step with each other. Uh, it's That's one of the reasons why coordination with Secret Hideout in the form of Kirsten Beyer is so important on these projects because she's got her finger on the pulse of everything and she can tell us where the gaps are and she can lay out the stakes where we're safe, you know, at least for the moment. Uh, and then we are generally given a green light of, you know, here's your, here's your area that you can in operate in. And you know, hopefully we won't, you know, we won't, you know, shred you before the book even goes to print. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's been fun. And, you know, now the discovery is, and by the way, when I was writing the book, I had no knowledge that they were going to wrap the Caesar series. I had already delivered the manuscript and it had been copy edited and everything before that announcement even came down. So I, I was like, well, because I've been asked that question a few times. I'm like, nope, I had no idea. As far as I knew, they were thinking about a season six. Um, and I knew we're, I know where season five's direction is going because I had, with my stuff with Paramount, I, I read the scripts. So I knew what was happening. Um, so I was able to navigate away from all of that as well. Um, but, you know, the newer shows are, with the exception of, you know, like Picard. Picard was very serialized. So how do you set a story in between those episodes? Can you even do that uh, or between those seasons? Uh, Lower Decks is its own thing. And I think, you know, I don't know that it lends itself to a hundred thousand word novel the way the other shows do. Strange New Worlds is more classic Trek in approach in terms of its hourly episodic nature. Uh, and Prodigy, of course, has a very tight serialized storyline in its first season. So, you know, there's a little bit of everything that you have to mix around with and, um, I don't know that it's any different than working on any other major property where there's new material being created on a regular basis. Um, as I told somebody else in an interview, this is the first time I wrote a book based on a series that was still in active production, at least while I was writing it. Uh, normally the show has been off the air for a while. That's been the case my whole time. Um, so this is new. This was a new challenge for me because I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I was worried what season six might do again at the time I thought there might be a season six. Um, but it's a challenge, but it's no it's no different than any other era of writing Trek tie-ins, I don't think. And even the early Discovery novels were all set before the series, you know, leading up to it in a lot of ways. So, you know, 
Yeah. I, uh, in fact, I, I, I went further back than anybody uh, in terms of setting the first one I wrote, uh, the one with Lorca and Giorgio. Uh, I figured 10 years before the show starts, they can't decanonize me that fast, can they? So, so far, I think it's worked. We'll see. You know, one of the um, plot points in this book has to do with the spore drive, which throughout the entire series has been a you know, pretty major piece of technology that, you know, people wonder, how do we fit the spore drive into canon? And then, you know, okay, well, now it's top secret. And we've even seen in season three with um, the Federation still wants to kind of keep it under wraps. But in this book, we actually find the Zahians are starting to try to develop this technology. And, you know, from Queen Poe had her detailed notes had, you know, given them the opportunity and the, you know, nine centuries or <laughs> however many it was, yeah. you know, being able to do that, like it really gave Stamets a chance to shine. I feel like in this book with the action that, that happens towards the end, um, you know, we, we haven't really got to see the sport drive in the books, you know, much so far, partly because of this. So like, what, what was that like kind of having to really dust off some techno babble and, you know, really get into the nitty gritty of the spore drive. Well, I mean, it was interesting because in, in, in a lot of ways, the spore drive really messes with your plotting because <laughs> <laughs> you can go anywhere in the blink of an eye. I'm like, well, okay. But, you know, obviously, you know, we find out that nobody else apparently was able to replicate this technology uh, during the time that discovery missed. Um, for whatever reason, we don't know. And of course, I don't know that the Sahans started doing anything with it right away because, of course, they had their own troubles that they had to deal with later on. So it's something that came along later as a, you know, a chance discovery. They found it in her private papers or something, as I think I had the book. So you know what they didn't realize was the missing ingredient, which was Stamets himself. Uh, they they did not have that uh, key to being able to use the sport drive effectively, which is Stamets himself and, 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 and uh, his particular abilities. So yeah, that was an opportunity for me to get Stamets into the action and try to do things a little, like I said, I was looking to do a traditional Star Trek story where we've got the different characters doing different things uh, based on their skills and, and, and their personalities. So that was a, it was a fun thing. And then, you know, playing around with the technology, that was one of the challenges of writing, this particular book in this time frame is you're working against 50 years of Trek muscle memory, you know, where people tap a com badge or they flip open their communicator or their phasers on it on their hip, or, you know, it's like, okay, I forgot. Oh, wait a minute. The tricorder, they don't carry a tricorder anymore. It pops up out of their badge as a hologram. You know, and I would have to go back and rewrite a passage because I had written it like a traditional star Trek with, you know, they flip open his tricorder or do whatever. I mean, it's just little, little nagging little things that irritate you when you're writing and you're on a roll and you realize you screwed up. <laughs> so, and then, you know, things like, I don't need, how do you, I, I don't have a scene where I've got two characters walking to the transporter room because you can just tap your com badge and transport anywhere. So there's things that you have to take into account. And these are all just cosmetic things that how you, you can go into how you construct your story. But, you know, I, now I realize, you know, the walk and talk thing, I think may have actually, originated on star trek you know when they you know they want to walk from the you know when they want to give us some exposition they do it while they're walking from the bridge to the transporter room or in the turbo lift and, you know it's like wow how do you do that now now i have to have an, a plausible and not boring reason to have these guys all stand around in a briefing room or in a quarters for a few minutes so i can convey some information uh so it's just little little things like that uh that i don't they're not frustrating they're just part of the process it was fun um, getting to getting to understand how the technology works because they really didn't explain the 32nd century technology to us. They just showed it to us. I'm like, well, okay, but I have to explain this on the page in a way that makes sense. Uh, so I had, you know, again, Kirsten, invaluable counsel, uh, helped me with that. What's your thinking? What was your idea when you did this? Uh, so it was fun. Not something I'm anxious to do again. <laughs> I'm ready to go back and do a traditional Trek book at this point. I mean, maybe maybe there'll be another Discovery book. I don't know. Uh, but I'm ready for a good old-fashioned Star Trek shoot 'em up I guess. Well, we got strange new worlds that uh, there you go. Right for. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I like my communicators flipping open, you know, <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. Um, 
one of the, you were talking about like we're talking about this technology thing and and like creating new technology um Casey had had written on the outline I thought this was really cool you know that that you had compared the the sanctuary station uh to the watchtower class and that he had envisioned it kind of more like Yorktown from Star Trek Beyond and so we were kind of wondering you know, what your thinking went into in the creation of Sanctuary. It was more like Yorktown in my head. Um, in fact, I allude to, I think there's a line that um, one of the characters says that, you know, that she saw plans for stations of that type. Don't know if they ever actually materialized because it, was, it would have been before their time in this timeline. Um, but the Watchtower class was... Um, a comparison in terms of it's even bigger than this, you know, uh, and the Watchtower class, you know, which was created for the Vanguard novels is, is a fairly large facility. I mean, it can house four constitution class starships inside its primary hull with room to spare, uh, and all the support facilities. And then of course the, 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 uh, the larger area, the earth-like environment that they have up there. So it's a huge station. And this thing is bigger than that. You know, this thing is, even much more much. So I'm like, you know, you're basically building an artificial environment, self-sustaining that can move under its own power. So this thing is huge, but these, of course, these, you know, the Zahans were blessed with a planet rich in dilithium. So they've got their unlimited. So there was an unlimited supply or a very largely unlimited supply of that material that they were able to take with them. Um, but yeah, I envisioned it as a self-sustaining ecosystem like Starbase Yorktown, similar in, 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 in how it was constructed. And I knew there would be comparisons to that. So I just hung the lampshade right on it and said, yeah, it looks a lot like what I read about when I was at the Academy or whatever I said. It's almost surprising. We haven't seen something like that on discovery already, given that they're, you know, 900 years in the future. So, you know, we kind of got a little bit of an idea of that with, you know, the Federation Starbase, but it was powered by all the ships and. Right. I wanted this to be bigger than Federation headquarters. I wanted it to, but I wanted it to Im imbue some of the same qualities. Like it's got the disruption field around it. And in, in their case, a protective shield and, uh, to hide it from the people, to hide it from their adversaries. Uh, yeah, I just wanted it to be just this massive environment that you could live in and look up and you're like, you could almost buy into the illusion that you're on a real planet. Yeah, I, I got that for sure. Almost, but not quite. You know, you like look up. If you look up far enough, you can still see the superstructure and, and everything. But I was really curious because as you were talking about the the technology with the spore drive and everything. I was thinking back to, you know, when they created Enterprise. One of the reasons that they just didn't go farther into the future was they just, what do you do, you know? And mm -hmm. so, um, I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on just playing around in a place that's supposed to be so advanced and do you feel like that that is harder because it's so easy to answer all the questions you know like you know you can just jump with a spore drive from here to there you know you you don't you don't get to do um like you were talking about like walk and talks and everything because everything feels so immediate and so like you know um like us, you know, we, we live in this world where everything um, seems to be like, if we don't get it right now, that's, you know, but that seems to be the 31st century uh, for them in some ways. So is it harder then to overcome storytelling problems because everything seems so immediate? It's definitely, it's a challenge, but I don't know that it's, it's, not, it's obviously not impossible. It's, uh, you know, what I start with is, all right, I've got all this tech and I, I do this with just about every Star Trek story I've ever written is, you know, I've got all this technology that's available to me, depending on which crew I'm dealing with and in which era, how do I figure, how do I, how would the bad guys or how would the whatever disable it? How would you get around it? How would you, how would it become a problem? You know, it's like, how, how do I remove that from being the easy answer? So there, you know, it's always a case of, you know, is there something that inhibits the transporters? Is there a radiation field? Does data get shut off or, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, you, you, you work around, you work, you backward, you work backwards to figure out, okay, how do I defeat this technology in a story plausible way that I haven't done 12 or 15 times before? That's the key. And then still make it interesting and then still be able to showcase that technology at the right moment in the story, you know? Uh, and again, 
I hearken also without uh, falling into the trap of the technology is the star of the story. You know, that's the other thing is the Star Trek's always been the technology supports our characters and supports our storytelling. It's not the end all be all of Star Trek. So you wonder what you wonder what people in the 32nd century do when you can pretty much have anything you want by tapping your badge or tapping this or, or, you know, programmable matter can make it for you. It's like, but I guess it goes down to what are you doing with your life anyway? At that point, are you trying to make a buck? Are you just trying to live your best life? Are you trying to make things better than they were before you found it? I mean, it's, I guess it goes back to what your value system is or what your priorities are in life. Um, So maybe not everything needs to be immediate. If you're really not in a rush, you're just busy living life. It's like, I can do all these things, but I still like to go camping and leave all that crap at home, (laughs) right? I can have my computer and I can have Uber and I can have DoorDash and I can have, you know, streaming movies, but yet I still like to get away from all that stuff from time to time and live. So I think it's like that times, you know, 10 or 20, you know, basically is like, what do you do in the far future when everything is at your fingertips? Well, you got to go find your phone and your life someplace else. Live your life a different way. It's not an easy question to answer. And I imagine that answer is different for everybody, uh, which is part of the fun, I guess. Speaking of living life, I, I can't, we can't go without asking about movie night. Uh, we, uh, we, <laughs> we bookend, uh, this story with, you know, movie nights and, uh, definitely caught the first reference right away. In fact, even texted Matt about it as soon as I read it. That was, you know, one of everybody's, uh, favorite Star Trek movies, I think. <laughs> it's the best Star Trek movie ever yes. made. Um, <laughs> so. Yes, those are fun, fun little Easter eggs in there for anybody. I actually tried to have at the end, I wanted to have uh, a setup where stories of previous Star Trek or Starfleet crews had been dramatized mm. at some point in during that intervening 900 years. Like, you know, the, like the, the, the voyages of the Enterprise, the voyages of Voyager, and, you know, these had become dramatic fiction in some form, the way we dramatize historical events now. And so I had it all set up about to basically the idea was that I was going to compare Discovery's crew and their plight to find a home with Voyager and its crew's, you know, attempts to do that during their journey back to the Delta Quadrant. And that was a bridge too far. My editor said I shouldn't too much of a too don't want to put it too on the button. So that's what prompted the end, the movie night at the end of the book, which I don't know if you've even, I've had a couple of people reach out to me. Was it this? <laughs> Was it that? Because I don't name either yeah. one, obviously, uh, but I, I like to have fun. And I'm like, if you, if you get the reference, great. If not, hopefully it still works for you. So, did you all get the I, second I want to say it was like Alien Nation or something like that, but I wasn't totally sure. Got it in no. one. There you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was I was worried that uh, as they started doing the the second movie night that they were just going to do Alien or something like that, some just like horror <laughs> movie <laughs> that wouldn't really bring everybody together. Couldn't res- yeah. I couldn't resist the Galaxy Quest no, reference. Yeah, that um, one was definitely uh, like that was yeah. definitely. A- and I love the fact that the that, uh, I love the fact that you know our Denobulan therapist is as much a fan of movie night as everybody else. In fact, more so than like half the crew, you know, he's all there. He's got popcorn. He's got his milk duds can't name it for trademark reasons, <laughs> yes. but there you go. I love, I love the, the thought that all of this lasts like, you know, um, and, and people are still watching these movies uh, in the 31st century. That is fantastic. I love, uh, one of my favorite things about stranger worlds is that, um, you know, captain Pike is a fan of the day the earth stood still. Yes. Yes. So, so um, I feel I feel vindicated, you know. So with with discovery coming to an end, and you know you having gotten the opportunity to play in this universe a little bit with discovery, um, I just wanted to know from you what what do you think is the legacy then of you know Star Trek Discovery and what it leaves behind? Um, well, I mean, outside the box. You know, Discovery basically launched a new era of Star Trek um, in terms of how new Star Trek filmed content is delivered. Um, I don't know that it would have survived if it had been, you know, commissioned for one of the networks. 
or um, even cable. You know, I don't I don't know that it would have survived just because of how unforgiving, you know, that environment is toward any television show. But science fiction in particular has a hard time finding a footing. Um, so I love the fact that it, you know, Star Trek's always been kind of intertwined with innovation and pushing things forward and technology and progress. And people, you know, still to this day point to Star Trek as the reason they got into different technical fields or engineering fields. Um, so I love the fact that it helped, you know, solidify streaming efforts for Star Trek. And now look at what we have. So I love that part inside the box. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to see the lore push beyond what we basically became comfortable with, which is the 23rd of the 24th century. Um, I love the fact that they went so far out that, you know, if it was to continue, the chances of having a cameo from one of the other shows is reduced. And we have to spend our time on strange new worlds and strange new ideas and strange new stories. Um, I think that was an interesting setup that had a lot of potential. You know, you can argue that they should have started there and not even bothered with the 23rd century part. But I, I think it's I think it was OK to have one foot in the lore to help get it launched. And then once it found its footing, it took off and did its own thing. Um, it'll be interesting to see what spins out of that. You know, we know we have the, we have the Academy show that's, you know, in development and that's a spin out of discovery. Um, so, you know, my hopes are, I have high hopes for it. I mean, I want everything to succeed. I want everything to, I want everything to be a blockbuster or a bestseller, you know, whatever. So I'm a big cheerleader for it. And I'd probably be a cheerleader for it anyway, no matter what my search, my situation was writing for it or anything like that. I'm just a big Star Trek fan at the end of the day. So more Trek is good Trek. Well, we do know that there right now we don't we don't have anything coming down the pipeline books that have been announced. Um, but as always, just wondering for you, what's coming up? What should people be looking for? Uh, what are you working on? And of course, you know, where can people find you so they can make sure to uh, get and get whatever it is that Dayton's got coming out? I mean, Kevin and I have been busy doing some short story writing and, and for different anthologies that are not Star Trek. Uh, we had one come out earlier this year. That's a space Western. That's part of an anthology called uh, High Noon on Proxima B. So everything's sort of like weird space Western. Uh, we did one for uh, an anthology that Keith DeCanada was editing called The Four Question Marks of the Apocalypse, where everybody takes a turn on different spins on four somethings of the apocalypse. So Kevin and I basically came up with the four preppers of the apocalypse. We called our story Prepocalypse Now, and it's about four <laughs> doomsday survivor, doomsday bunker maker guys who get caught up in the apocalypse, the end of the world. And that's coming out, I think, in July. Uh, we, I just had a short story get published in an anthology called Double Trouble, which is an anthology of – it's a tie-in anthology, but it's all characters from the public domain. Or from actual history. So uh, instead of it being a you know a licensed IP, everything's in the public domain, like Sherlock Holmes or uh, Annie Oakley or uh, Captain Nemo. And so I took two comic characters from the 1940s, which fell out of into the public domain 70 odd years ago, uh, called Captain Battle and Blackout, and teamed them up to, to do a World War II story. Um, and then Kevin and I have another anthology short story coming out called, for a new IP called Universe, which is a gaming setup, which they're also doing transmedia properties like comics and novels and possibly films. And it's a big, big deal at the beginning. And somehow we got invited to participate in writing one of the short stories for their first anthology. Uh, and then I guess the biggest thing that Kevin and I have coming out in November is we did a book for uh, Ben Bella Books and Marvel. Uh, which is basically deconstructing Tony Stark, Iron Man. Uh, it's basically a, it's an extended interview. It's based, it's basically taking a page from a series of books called the last interview, which are real books where they actually, where they talk to somebody at, you know, who's at the peak or the pinnacle or at the twilight of their career about their entire broad career and all their accomplishments. But so we, we spend, you know, an inordinate amount of time talking about Tony, talking to Tony Stark and having him tell us what makes him tick. And, of course, we draw on 60-odd years of comics history and continuity. It's all based on the comic version of the character, uh, which, of course, has gone under a number of transformations over the years. So uh, that's coming out in November. Uh, and, of course, I'm, we're working on stuff that hasn't been announced yet, so I can't talk about any of that kind of thing. Uh, if you want to find out what I'm working on as I drop dribbles and drabs and hits, you can find me at datemore.com. 
where I will have a blog and I have a landing page for my social media links and all that good stuff. I think I speak for everyone when I say that we do hope that you get to do more Star Trek books and we hope that they do continue because um, there's there's nothing better than being able to read uh, a new Star Trek story uh, and whether it's going to be in the format of, you know, original series or Strange New Worlds or, you know, Picard, more Discovery, whatever, um, I, you guys have, have, I think, become such an indelible part of, of Star Trek. I honestly just can't imagine not having you all around. <laughs> it was kind of weird. Um, I mean, thank you for on behalf of the other folks who do this. Um, it was, was kind of weird when I got told last year that they were going to push the book into 2023. I said, you realize it's like the first time since 2008 that I haven't had at least one Star Trek novel published each year. <laughs> so I've gotten spoiled. And uh, I mean, it's been a heck of a ride and I'm thankful for it. And I will keep, I will keep doing it as long as they let me. Um, but I've been doing it for quite a long time. As I was reminded a, a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, man, it has been a long time. I've been doing this longer than a lot of people. Um, but I enjoy every minute of it. It's uh, as a fanboy who turned pro, it's been a, quite a ride. And I do hope that we will sit here again to talk about whatever my next one is. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you keep writing them, we'll keep reading them and keep having you back. I hope to be here. I hope I hope to say we, you know, we can plan on another one one of these days. Might have to just dive back into your back catalog and have you back for one of those older ones. I don't even know. Did we ever do that, Matt? I don't know. You guys have been doing this for a long time now, but I don't remember if we've ever actually gone backward. We we definitely have had people on to go backwards, you know, with, with stories. And, you know, I think it would be really fun to be able to do more often now, just because, you know, we don't get the opportunity uh, right now to talk to people, um, you know, and, and in all honesty, just kind of miss being able to do that. And so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, until things get announced, that might be something we have to do more often uh, with literary tracks just because, um, yeah, I mean, we want people to be looking at y'all's old works as much as, you know, what's coming out new because it's stuff that's worth catching up on. Like, you know, Casey's just been uh, in the fall series. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, you know, just brought me back to the good old days of, of having those big series that you guys would be working on and, and think, you know, figuring everything out and, you know, David Mack with his ridiculous Excel spreadsheets. And <laughs> so <laughs> we need more of the that. Fall, I mean, the, the fall was 10 years ago for crying out loud. I know it's crazy. Um, so it's crazy. So I don't know where the last 25 years went, but it's been quite a ride. Well, it's funny because this was the first podcast that I did, and that was 12 years ago. And so right. it's crazy. Uh, but Dayton, thank you so much. I mean, from from the bottom of our hearts for having been so generous with your time for all of these years. And we absolutely hope to have you back soon. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I always like coming on and talking to you guys. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, like I said, I, 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 I hope that uh, we'll be able to do it again somewhere down the road. Amen to that. Even if it's going to, even if we do end up digging back into, into the back stuff. I mean, I may have to, I may have to go reread a book or two to refresh my mind. <laughs> 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 so. Oh man. Getting old, man. Getting old sucks. That's all I can say. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, now we've got uh, Dayton safely locked away back in that green room until uh, we get to talk to him again. But, you know, I, I got to say it's so cool to be able to talk to these authors. You know, we've, we've had a couple on already this year and, um, you know, it's such a such a joy to have them on and be able to get, you know, really deep into the writing process, the thought process behind their stories and just have really good, deep, uh, deep discussions about, you know, these Star Trek stories that that our favorite authors are writing. And so, you know, really hoping, uh, you know, Dayton, John Jackson Miller, Una, David Mack, any of them get a chance to write more because right now we don't have any more fiction, you know, on the schedule for this year. So, you know, everybody keep buying the book so we can, you know, get more from the from these authors. 
Yeah, I think that's great advice, Casey. You know, if if as fans, we want more of these books, um, we do have to buy them. And, you know, it was phenomenal getting the Strange New Worlds book by John Jackson Miller. You know, uh, at the end of last year, we had the new book by David Mack. And here, of course, we had the book from Dayton Ward. And if you want these books, you've got to buy them. And, you know, heck, you know, it's not a bad time to... Uh, if, if you're enjoying the books themselves, uh, go buy the old books, right? Um, that lets them know that you're still interested. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're doing all we can to help by continuing to cover uh, those older books. In fact, uh, as we move forward, we're going to be finishing the Deep Space Nine Rebels series, and hopefully that'll uh, end well. And then we're going to be talking about The Buried Age by Christopher L. Bennett, uh, and we've got, I think, uh, Cast No Shadow coming up. And then we've got a bunch of great stuff coming out in the fall, which is new, but it's not fiction. It's nonfiction, um, unless you count, of course, uh, the autobiography of Captain Cisco. But, of course, that's that's not fiction. That is nonfiction as well. So, it's um, absolutely but, real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, Casey, you know, if anybody wants to see what else you've got going on these days and, and – um, What's happening uh, with you? Where would they find you? Well, really, the only places I'm active anymore are Goodreads and Letterboxd. So uh, definitely check me out there. I'm at Knitting Trekkie. And, uh, you know, I can I also poke around on Facebook and the Babel Conference from time to time. So definitely hit us up on there and tell us what you think or if, you know, tell us what you want to hear. Matt, uh, you know, when you're not, you know, restocking the snack bar for Dayton, where are people going to find you? Yeah, I feel really bad that uh, we forgot to do that for him. So I'm going to have yeah. to get into that. But uh, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, Of course, here on the network doing a bunch of different shows. We've got the 602 Club, which is all of those fandoms outside of Star Trek that we love. So please check that out. We have such a blast over there. In fact, love uh, the fact that we uh, added to the team of reviewers as kind of a, a permanent co-host now uh coming on when christy's not there is uh zachary fruling which is great and we just talked about tron of course we just uh discussed across the spider-verse which has just come out you can also find me on the orb warp 5 the artificial tango and saddle up as we're recording this in fact casey as we're recording this we have just one more week until strange new worlds comes back which I don't know about you, but I am super excited about. Yeah, those trailers are are getting all the hype up. Can't wait for it. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, so you'll want to make sure that you catch up with Saddle Up as well as so, you know, you can listen to the old episodes and then we'll have the new episodes coming out as we're talking about the brand new episodes dropping. And last but not least, you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got a couple of shows there. Uh, you can find me doing... Owl Post with Dre Kaufman as we talk about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then, of course, you can also find me doing Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills, which was a Star Wars podcast. And we love talking about Star Wars each and every week. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>